Section 16 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Chapter 4A, Other Factors Considered, Part 1. During its investigation, the board evaluated every known factor that could have caused or contributed to the Columbia accident, such as the effects of space weather on the orbiter during re-entry, and the specters of sabotage and terrorism. In addition to the analysis scenario investigations, the board oversaw a NASA fault tree investigation, which accounts for every chain of events that could possibly cause a system to fail. Most of these factors were conclusively eliminated as having nothing to do with the accident. However, several factors have yet to be ruled out. Although deemed by the board as unlikely to have contributed to the accident, these are still open and are being investigated further by NASA. In a few other cases, there is insufficient evidence to completely eliminate a factor, though most evidence indicates it did not play a role in the accident. In the course of investigating these factors, the board identified several serious problems that were not part of the accident's causal chain, but nonetheless have major implications for future missions. In this chapter, a discussion of these potential causal and contributing factors is divided into two sections. The first introduces the primary tool used to access potential causes of the breakup, the fault tree. The second addresses fault tree items and particularly notable factors that raised concerns for this investigation and, more broadly, for the future operation of the space shuttle. 4.1. Fault Tree The NASA Accident Investigation Team investigated the accident using fault trees, a common organizational tool in systems engineering. Fault trees are graphical representations of every conceivable sequence of events that could cause a system to fail. The fault tree's uppermost level illustrates the events that could have directly caused the loss of Columbia by aerodynamic breakup during re-entry. Subsequent levels comprise all individual elements or factors that could cause the failure described immediately above it. In this way, all potential chains of causation that lead ultimately to the loss of Columbia can be diagrammed, and the behavior of every subsystem that was not a precipitating cause can be eliminated from consideration. Figure 4.1-1 depicts the fault tree structure for the Columbia accident investigation. NASA chartered six teams to develop fault trees, one for each of the shuttle's major components, the orbiter, space shuttle main engine, reusable solid rocket motor, solid rocket booster, external tank, and payload. A seventh systems integration fault tree team analyzed failure scenarios involving two or more shuttle components. These interdisciplinary teams included NASA and contractor personnel, as well as outside experts. Some of the fault trees are very large and intricate. For instance, the orbiter fault tree, which only considers events on the orbiter that could have led to the accident, includes 234 elements. In contrast, the system's integration fault tree, 
which deals with interactions among parts of the shuttle, includes 295 unique multi-element integration faults, 128 orbiter multi-element faults, and 221 connections to the other shuttle components. These faults fall into three categories, induced and natural environments, such as structural interface loads and electromechanical effects, integrated vehicle mass properties, and external impacts, such as debris from the external tank. Because the system's integration team considered multi-element faults, that is, scenarios involving several shuttle components, it frequently worked in tandem with the component teams. In the case of the Columbia accident, there could be two plausible explanations for the aerodynamic breakup of the orbiter. One, the orbiter sustained structural damage that undermined attitude control during re-entry. Or two, the orbiter maneuvered to an attitude in which it was not designed to fly. The former explanation deals with structural damage initiated before launch, during ascent, on orbit, or during re-entry. The latter considers aerodynamic breakup caused by improper attitude or trajectory control by the orbiter's flight control system. Telemetry and other data strongly suggest that improper maneuvering was not a factor. Therefore, most of the fault tree analysis concentrated on structural damage that could have impeded the orbiter's attitude control, in spite of properly operating guidance, navigation, and flight control systems. When investigators ruled out a potential cascade of events, as represented by a branch on the fault tree, it was deemed closed. When evidence proved inconclusive, the item remained open. Some elements could be dismissed at a high level in the tree, but most required delving into lower levels. An intact shuttle component or system, for example, a piece of orbiter debris, often provided the basis for closing an element. Telemetry data can be equally persuasive. It frequently demonstrated that a system operated correctly until the loss of signal, providing strong evidence that the system in question did not contribute to the accident. The same holds true for data obtained from the Modular Auxiliary Data System Recorder, which was recovered intact after the accident. The closeout of particular chains of causation was examined at various stages, culminating in reviews by the NASA Orbiter Vehicle Engineering Working Group and the NASA Accident Investigation Team. After these groups agreed to close an element, their findings were forwarded to the board for review. At the time of this report's publication, the board had closed more than 1,000 items. A summary of fault tree elements is listed in Figure 4.1-2. The open elements are grouped by their potential for contributing either directly or indirectly to the accident. The first group contains elements that may have in any way contributed to the accident. Here, contributed means that the element may have been an initiating event or a likely cause of the accident. The second group contains elements that could not be closed and may or may not have contributed to the accident. These elements are possible causes or factors in this accident. The third group contains elements that could not be closed but are unlikely to have contributed to the accident. Appendix D3 lists all the elements that were closed and thus eliminated from consideration as a cause or factor of this accident. 
Some of the element closure efforts will continue after this report is published. Some elements will never be closed because there is insufficient data and analysis to unconditionally conclude that they did not contribute to the accident. For instance, heavy rain fell on Kennedy Space Center prior to the launch of STS-107. Could this abnormally heavy rainfall have compromised the external tank bipod foam? Experiments showed that the foam did not tend to absorb rain, but the rain could not be ruled out entirely as having contributed to the accident. Fault tree elements that were not closed as of publication are listed in Appendix D4. 4.2. Remaining Factors Several significant factors caught the attention of the board during the investigation. Although it appears that they were not causal in the STS-107 accident, they are presented here for completeness. Solid Rocket Booster Bolt Catchers the fault tree review brought to light a significant problem with the solid rocket booster bolt catchers. Each solid rocket booster is connected to the external tank by four separation bolts, three at the bottom plus a larger one at the top that weighs approximately 65 pounds. These larger upper or forward separation bolts, one on each solid rocket booster, and their associated bolt catchers on the external tank, provoked a great deal of board scrutiny. About two minutes after launch, the firing of pyrotechnic charges breaks each forward separation bolt into two pieces, allowing the spent solid rocket boosters to separate from the external tank. See figure 4.2-1. Two bolt catchers on the external tank each trap the upper half of a fired separation bolt, while the lower half stays attached to the solid rocket booster. As a result, both halves are kept from flying free of the assembly and potentially hitting the orbiter. Bolt catchers have a domed aluminum cover containing an aluminum honeycomb matrix that absorbs the fired bolt's energy. The two upper bolt halves and their respective catchers subsequently remain connected to the external tank, which burns up on re-entry, while the lower halves stay with the solid rocket boosters that are recovered from the ocean. If one of the bolt catchers failed during STS-107, the resulting debris could have damaged Columbia's wing-leading edge. Concerns that the bolt catchers may have failed, causing metal debris to ricochet toward the orbiter, arose because the configuration of the bolt catchers used on shuttle missions differs in important ways from the design used in initial qualification tests. First, the attachments that currently hold bolt catchers in place use bolts threaded into inserts rather than through bolts. Second, the test design included neither the super lightweight ablative material applied to the bolt catcher apparatus for thermal protection, nor the aluminum honeycomb configuration currently used. Also, during these initial tests, temperature and pressure readings for the bolt firings were not recorded. Instead of conducting additional tests to correct for these discrepancies, NASA engineers qualified the flight design configuration using a process called analysis and similarity. The flight configuration was validated using extrapolated test data and redesigned specifications rather than direct testing. This means that NASA's rationale for considering bolt catchers to be safe for flight is based on limited data from testing 24 years ago on a model that differs significantly from the current design. 
Due to these testing deficiencies, the board recognized that bolt catchers could have played a role in damaging Columbia's left wing. The aluminum dome could have failed catastrophically, ablative coating could have come off in large quantities, or the device could have failed to hold to its mount point on the external tank. To determine whether bolt catchers should be eliminated as a source of debris, investigators conducted tests to establish a performance baseline for bolt catchers in their current configuration, and also reviewed radar data to see whether bolt catcher failure could be observed. The results had serious implications. Every bolt catcher tested failed well below the expected load range of 68,000 pounds. In one test, a bolt catcher failed at 44,000 pounds, which was 2% below the 46,000 pounds generated by a fired separation bolt. This means that the force at which a separation bolt is predicted to come apart during flight could exceed the bolt catcher's ability to safely recapture the bolt. If these results are consistent with further tests, the factor of safety for the bolt catcher system would be 0.956, far below the design requirement of 1.4, that is, able to withstand 1.4 times the maximum load ever expected in operation. Every bolt catcher must be inspected via X-ray as a final step in the manufacturing process to ensure specification compliance. There are specific requirements for film type and quality to allow sufficient visibility of weld quality, where the dome is mated to the mounting flange, and reveal any flaws. There is also a requirement to archive the film for several years after the hardware has been used. The manufacturer is required to evaluate the film, and a defense contract management agency representative certifies that requirements have been met. The substandard performance of the SUMA bolt catchers tested by NASA at Marshall Space Flight Center and subsequent investigation revealed that the contractor's use of film failed to meet quality requirements, and, because of this questionable quality, there were probable weld defects in most of the archived film. Film of STS-107's bolt catchers, serial numbers 1 and 19, both SUMA manufactured, was also determined to be substandard with probable weld defects, cracks, porosity, lack of penetration, on number one, left solid rocket booster to external tank attach point. Number 19 appeared adequate, though the substandard film quality leaves some doubt. Further investigation revealed that a lack of qualified non-destructive inspection technicians and differing interpretations of inspection requirements contributed to this oversight. United Space Alliance, NASA's agent in procuring bolt catchers, exercises limited process oversight and delegates actual contract compliance verification to the Defense Contract Management Agency. The Defense Contract Management Agency interpreted its responsibility as limited to certifying compliance with the requirement for X-ray inspections. Since neither the Defense Contract Management Agency nor United Space Alliance had a resident non-destructive inspection specialist, they could not read the X-ray film or certify the weld. Consequently, the required inspections of weld quality and end-item certification were not properly performed. Inadequate oversight and confusion over the requirement on the parts of NASA, United Space Alliance, 
and the Defense Contract Management Agency all contributed to this problem. In addition, STS-107 radar data from the U.S. Air Force Eastern Range Tracking System identified an object with a radar cross-section consistent with a bolt catcher departing the shuttle stack at the time of solid rocket booster separation. The resolution of the radar return was not sufficient to definitively identify the object. However, an object that has about the same radar signature as a bolt catcher was seen on at least five other shuttle missions. Debris shedding during solid rocket booster separation is not an unusual event. However, the size of this object indicated that it could be a potential threat if it came close to the orbiter after coming off the stack. Although bolt catchers can be neither definitively excluded nor included as a potential cause of left-wing damage to Columbia, the impact of such a large object would likely have registered on the shuttle stack's sensors. The indefinite data at the time of solid rocket booster separation, in tandem with overwhelming evidence related to the foam debris strike, leads the board to conclude that bolt catchers are unlikely to have been involved in this accident. Findings F 4.2-1 The certification of the bolt catchers flown on STS-107 was accomplished by extrapolating analysis done on similar but not identical bolt catchers in original testing. No testing of flight hardware was performed. F 4.2-2 Board-directed testing of a small sample size demonstrated that the as-flown bolt catchers do not have the required 1.4 margin of safety. F4.2-3, quality assurance processes for bolt catchers, a criticality one subsystem, were not adequate to assure contract compliance or product adequacy. F4.2-4, an unknown metal object was seen separating from the stack during solid rocket booster separation during six space shuttle missions. These objects were not identified, but were characterized as of little or no concern. Recommendations R4.2-1 Test and qualify the flight hardware bolt catchers. Capton Wiring because of previous problems with its use in the space shuttle and its implication in aviation accidents, Capton insulated wiring was targeted as a possible cause of the Columbia accident. Capton is an aromatic polyamide insulation that the DuPont Corporation developed in the 1960s. Because Capton is lightweight, non-flammable, has a wide operating temperature range, and resists damage, it has been widely used in aircraft and spacecraft for more than 30 years. Each orbiter contains 140 to 157 miles of Kapton insulated wire, approximately 1,700 feet of which is inaccessible. Despite its positive properties, decades of use have revealed one significant problem that was not apparent during its development and initial use. Kapton insulation can break down, leading to a phenomenon known as arc tracking. When arc tracking occurs, the insulation turns to carbon, or carbonizes, at temperatures of 1,100 to 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Carbonization is not the same as combustion. During tests unrelated to Columbia, Kapton wiring placed in an open flame did not continue to burn when the wiring was removed from the flame. 
Nevertheless, when carbonized, Kapton becomes a conductor, leading to a soft electrical short that causes systems to gradually fail or operate in a degraded fashion. Improper installation and mishandling during inspection and maintenance can also cause Kapton insulation to split, crack, flake, or otherwise physically degrade. Arc tracking is pictured in figure 4.2-2. Perhaps the greatest concern is the breakdown of the wire's insulation when exposed to moisture. Over the years, the Federal Aviation Administration has undertaken extensive studies into wiring-related issues, and has issued advisory circulars, 25-16 and 43.13-1b, on aircraft wiring that discuss using aromatic polyamide insulation. It was discovered that as long as the wiring is designed, installed, and maintained properly, it is safe and reliable. It was also discovered, however, that the aromatic polyamide insulation does not function well in high-moisture environments, or in installations that require large or frequent flexing. The military had discovered the potentially undesirable aspects of aromatic polyamide insulation much earlier, and had effectively banned its use on new aircraft beginning in 1985. These rules, however, apply only to pure polyamide insulation. Various other insulations that contain polyamide are still used in appropriate areas. The first extensive scrutiny of Kapton wiring on any of the orbiters occurred during Columbia's third orbiter major modification period, after a serious system malfunction during the STS-93 launch of Columbia in July 1999. A short circuit five seconds after liftoff caused two of the six main engine controller computers to lose power, which could have caused one or two of the three main engines to shut down. The ensuing investigation identified damaged Kapton wire as the cause of the malfunction. In order to identify and correct such wiring problems, all orbiters were grounded for an initial partial inspection, with more extensive inspections planned during their next depot-level maintenance. During Columbia's subsequent orbiter major modification, wiring was inspected and redundant system wiring in the same bundles was separated to prevent arc tracking damage. Nearly 4,900 wiring nonconformances, conditions that did not meet specifications, were identified and corrected. Kapton-related problems accounted for approximately 27% of the nonconformances. This examination revealed a strong correlation between wire damage and the orbiter areas that had experienced the most foot traffic during maintenance and modification. Other aspects of shuttle operation may degrade Kapton wiring. In orbit, atomic oxygen acts as an oxidizing agent, causing chemical reactions and physical erosion that can lead to mass loss and surface property changes. Fortunately, actual exposure has been relatively limited, and inspections show that degradation is minimal. Laboratory tests on Kapton also confirm that on-orbit ultraviolet radiation can cause delamination, shrinkage, and wrinkling. A typical wiring bundle is shown in figure 4.2-3. Wiring nonconformances are corrected by rerouting, reclamping, or installing additional insulation such as convoluted tubing, insulating tape, insulating sheets, heat shrink sleeving, 
and abrasion pads. See figure 4.2-4. Testing has shown that wiring bundles usually stop arc tracking when wires are physically separated from one another. Further testing under conditions simulating the shuttle's wiring environment demonstrated that arc tracking does not progress beyond 6 inches. Based on these results, Boeing recommended that NASA separate all critical paths from larger wire bundles and individually protect them for a minimum of 6 inches beyond their separation points. This recommendation is being adopted through modifications performed during scheduled orbiter major modifications. For example, analysis of telemeter data from 14 of Columbia's left-wing sensors, hydraulic line, wing skin, wheel temperatures, tire pressures, and landing gear downlock position indication, provided failure signatures supporting the scenario of left-wing thermal intrusion, as opposed to a catastrophic failure, extensive arc tracking, of Kapton wiring. Actual NASA testing in the months following the accident, during which wiring bundles were subjected to intense heat, ovens, blowtorch, and arc jet, verified the failure signature analyses. Finally, extensive testing and analysis in years prior to STS-107 showed that, with the low currents and low voltages associated with the orbiter's instrumentation system, such as those in the left wing, the probability of arc tracking is commensurately low. Finding F4.2-5 Based on the extensive wiring inspections, maintenance, and modifications prior to STS-107, analysis of sensor wiring failure signatures and the alignment of the signatures with thermal intrusion into the wing, the board found no evidence that Kapton wiring problems caused or contributed to this accident. Recommendation R4.2-2 As part of the shuttle service life extension program and potential 40-year service life, develop a state-of-the-art means to inspect all orbiter wiring, including that which is inaccessible. Crushed Foam Based on the anticipated launch date of STS-107, a set of solid rocket boosters had been stacked in the vehicle assembly building and a lightweight tank had been attached to them. A reshuffling of the manifest in July 2002 resulted in a delay to the STS-107 mission. It was decided to use the already stacked solid rocket boosters for the STS-113 mission to the International Space Station. All flights to the International Space Station use super lightweight tanks, meaning that the external tank already mated would need to be removed and stored pending the rescheduled STS-107 mission. Since external tanks are not stored with the bipod struts attached, workers at the Kennedy Space Center removed the bipod strut from the lightweight tank before it was lifted into a storage cell. Following the demating of the bipod strut, an area of crushed PDL-1034 foam was found in the region beneath where the left bipod strut attached to the tank's Y-bipod fitting. The region measured about 1.5 inches by 1.25 inches by 0.187 inches and was located at roughly the 5 o'clock position. Foam thickness in this region was 2.187 inches. The crushed foam was exposed when the bipod strut was removed. This constituted an unacceptable condition and required a problem report write-up. 
NASA conducted testing at the Michaud Assembly Facility and at Kennedy Space Center to determine if crushed foam could have caused the loss of the left bipod ramp, and to determine if the limits specified in problem report procedures were sufficient for safety. Kennedy engineers decided not to take action on the crushed foam, because it would be covered after the external tank was mated to a new set of bipod struts that would connect it to Columbia, and the struts would sufficiently contain and shield the crushed foam. An inspection after the bipod struts were attached determined that the area of crushed foam was within limits specified in the drawing for this region. STS-107 was therefore launched with crushed foam behind the clevis of the left bipod strut. Crushed foam in this region is a routine occurrence because the foam is poured and shaved so that the mating of the bipod strut to the bipod fitting results in a tight fit between the bipod strut and the foam. Pre-launch testing showed that the extent of crushed foam did not exceed limits. In these tests, red dye was wicked into the crushed, open foam cells, and the damaged and dyed foam was then cut out and examined. Despite the effects of crushing, the foam's thickness around the bipod attach point was not substantially reduced. The foam effectively maintained insulation against ice and frost. The crushed foam was contained by the bipod struts and was subjected to little or no airflow. Finding F4.2-6 Crushed foam does not appear to have contributed to the loss of the bipod foam ramp off the external tank during the ascent of STS-107. Recommendations, none. End of section 16.